Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temmy, and I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. Hi, Laura. Hi, Joe. And Vedi Metha. Woo! Happy Pride Month, y'all! Hi! All right! Wow, you just came in really excited. I liked that. That was good. Yeah, we're, we're reaching the end of Pride Month here as June winds down, so we wanted to do a roundup of some different legal actions going on relating to rights and freedoms of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, before we jump into some new challenges going on, I believe Veda, he wanted to do a little time travel back to 2020, right? Why yeah. anyone would want to go back to 2020? I don't know, but let's talk <laughs> a little bit about the Supreme Court's groundbreaking decision in that field. It was almost exactly two years ago from when this podcast is going to be released. We, uh, we released an episode reacting to the surprising, though pleasantly surprising uh, SCOTUS decision in Bostock v. Clayton County. Um, and now there were a couple of companion cases in that decision in other states, but the, the nominal case was a guy from my hometown, Atlanta, who joined a gay baseball league and then his employer fired him, which is like, come on, Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) One companion case to this was uh, Altitude Express Inc. v. Zarda, which frankly involved all kinds of gender stereotypes, BS. Okay, so this is going to be a lot of my opinion, but there was a male skydiving instructor who I guess he had a female client. And since you have to strap in together, he didn't want her to feel uncomfortable since she had a boyfriend. And I guess they were worried that this poor instructor would try something with her, which is like, at that point, why are you even here? Like, don't get don't get a massage if you don't like being touched or anyway, sorry, I don't mean to get out on my soapbox. Um, I will say people do like to apply these sort of rape scare tactics to the argument against trans people using their preferred bathrooms too. So I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of over it. It's all tied in. Anyway, this poor skydiving instructor, um, he's gay and he tells this lady, look, I'm gay. I'm, I'm not going to get handsy with you, I guess. Right. Also, it's literally his job on the line. So why on earth or off earth? See what I did there? Uh, Why on earth would I pull something like this, right? Like at the certain consequence of getting fired. So trying to make her more comfortable that he's gay apparently backfires on him because this couple, they have some homophobic complaints. They complained that uh, to his boss that the instructor behaved inappropriately and the poor guy got fired. And so his lawyer argued that he was fired for failing to conform to the, quote, straight male macho stereotype. And actually, the tragic cherry on top was that this poor guy died in a parachuting accident before he saw the end of the case. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And his family continued fighting the case for him, of course. And um, and then finally, there was a third companion case to Bostock. And this was the case of RG and GR, Harris Funeral Homes, VEOC. Um, and that is, of course, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That's the agency that hears workplace discrimination claims, among other things. They investigate discrimination complaints of all kinds, not just sex, but um, race-based or religion-based, disability-based, and, and others as well. Um, this agency also mediates and settles these types of complaints and as here, they can file civil discrimination suits against employers on behalf of employees. This case, Harris Funeral Homes v. EOC, like the first two, also alleged a violation of Title VII. But in this case, it was a little different from the first two in that it alleged discrimination based on gender identity rather than sexual orientation. And you've, y'all have probably heard of the plaintiff in this case from back in 2020 because she was kind of a household name, Amy Stevens. 
She she worked in the funeral home and had previously presented herself as male. And then later she came out as female and she told her employer that she was going to go um, undergo reassignment surgery and present as a female going forward. But right after she told them that, she was fired. So, of course, she took up a legal battle and the EEOC helped represent her in court because they, they'll do that sometimes. And... Um, Gosh, this was just another tragedy for the plaintiff because just like a month before Sc- the SCOTUS decision came out, Stevens died from healthcare complications. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And but like the skydiving instructor, her estate continued to pursue the case, but it's like, oh, good for them. But I, I wish they could have lived to see yeah. the victory that they would have that they would have had. At the time that they had brought these cases, uh, there was a circuit split. And so, for example, the circuits that these cases were in had ruled that Title VII didn't apply to discrimination based on orientation or gender identity, because, of course, Title VII explicitly talks about discrimination based on sex. Right. But importantly, when SCOTUS took it up, which was, of course, uh, as we talk about in our episode from two years ago, if you guys want to listen to that, um, it was surprising because the the majority was authored by Trump's nominee, Gorsuch, um, who is you know, traditionally tends to be conservative and joined by the more liberal justices. And of course, Alito and Thomas dissented, a very, very long dissent, complete with appendices. Yeah, if I remember right, the dissent was 100 pages long and the the opinion itself was about 30 pages long. The dissent (laughs) is actually a a fascinating read. Uh, It does raise a lot of issues that, that we talked about two years ago. And so if any of you listening are not as familiar with the case, read both the majority opinion and the dissent because uh, that really kind of clarifies the issues for everyone. Yeah, and it's it's probably really interesting to read the Long Alito dissent now more than ever with his, with the Dobbs majority mm-hmm. that he authored. So give you some insight into him, but it might not surprise you too much. The majority, however, with Gorsuch, established the following rule, and I'll quote, An employer violates Title VII when it intentionally fires an individual employee based in part on sex. It makes no difference if other factors besides the plaintiff's sex contributed to the decision or that the employer treated women as a group the same when it compared to men as a group. A statutory violation occurs if an employer intentionally relies in part on an individual employee's sex when deciding to discharge the employee. Because discrimination on the basis of homosexuality or transgender status requires an employer to intentionally treat individual employees differently because of their sex, they're basically saying that it you, you have to consider sex when discriminating based on either sexual orientation or gender identity. So mm-hmm. the fact that sexual orientation and gender identity aren't explicitly mentioned in the statute is irrelevant because sex is considered when when discriminating either way on those. And so basically sex is a but-for cause when this discrimination happens. Yeah, the logic is pretty much that saying these employers can't treat people differently. Like, let's say all people who date men, for example, they're saying, okay, these employers Mm -hmm. were treating men who date men differently than women who Mm -hmm. date men. And that was sort of the yeah. logic that they said, you know, we can't we can't have that. Which is kind of, it might sound simple, but it's kind of like, I thought it was a brilliant way to spin it. It was, and we talked about it on the original episode, that the, the logic of it is there. And it's like, okay, and we don't really have the time to get into whether this really is the 
I mean, there's <laughs> Gorsuch had his his thing about the the canon of donut holes, which I oh, even yeah. two years later just sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> canon with one end, not two, y'all. <laughs> right, and his point there was that we can't just because Congress doesn't explicitly say something that doesn't automatically create mm-hmm. an exception. People kind of go back and forth on whether this is a straight up textualist interpretation as Gorsuch and the majority hold it out to be. But yeah, yeah. The, the end result, when you look at it through his lens, it's like, okay, yeah, this does seem pretty simple, even though it's probably not as simple as they make it sound. And on the donut hole thing, like basically um, an important takeaway was that the court said when Congress chooses not to include any exceptions to a broad rule, courts apply the broad rule. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly how this court has always approached Title Seven. So err on the side of giving more rights mm-hmm. than less, I suppose. Yeah, it was a big time case. And was it was one of those that it was sort of a surprise. But at the same time, once I read it, I wasn't as surprised at, yeah. as the way it came out. Yeah. But yeah, a, a huge win for those rights, for sure. So I, I'm glad we solved that two years ago. And nothing <laughs> at all has happened in the meanwhile, after that case, right? <laughs> right? So right? everything just, is great now. Yeah, we could just wash <laughs> our hands. And that issue yep. is solved, right? Oh, man. Oh, if only. (laughs) I will say that state courts since Bostock might be reluctant in agreeing with it, but have seemed to, you know, as they are constitutionally bound to do, hold it up. For example, there was just a case decided by the Supreme Court of Iowa just a couple months ago. The Supreme Court of Iowa was like, we don't actually agree with the reasoning of the Bostock Supreme Court majority. They said, we disagree with the Bostock majority on the issue of like that discrimination based on an individual's gender identity does not equate to discrimination based on an individual's male or female anatomical characteristics at the time of birth. Mm-hmm. So they, they were basically not buying the reasoning of the Supreme Court, but they still ruled in favor of the plaintiff that he was getting discriminated mm-hmm. because I guess they're, you know, they're still bound, even if they mm-hmm. want to say all they, they can say all they want to in their, yep. um, uh, what's it called? Dicta. Yep. That they, they still got to hold it up. I'll clean my room, but I'm not happy about it is basically yep, what they're yep. saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. or, or like when, when Andy or Joe tries to tell me I'm a diva, I just say, you don't have to like it. You just have to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> We, we came to terms a long time ago, Laura. It's okay. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. I know. I'm super difficult to work with. So you know who I think is a diva, Laura? <laughs> oh, and, God. And this is an outstanding tr- transition. So uh, <laughs> This is great. <laughs> Thank I, you. I nailed it is what I did. You did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Greg Abbott, I think. Uh, also, the infamous Ken Paxton. Yes, our favorite attorney general. Are we going to talk about him a third time I know. this year? I'm yeah. Talk- okay. yeah, I'm back to talk about Ken Paxton again. As we sort of mentioned at the top of the show, like when, when the Bostock decision came out, it was like, oh, great. This is, you know, this great move for expanding people's rights and protections. But that by no means means that... Any of these issues are fully resolved, as we have seen um, in Texas over the last two years, couple months. There's there's always a lot going on in Texas, it seems like. I wanted to talk a little bit about a lawsuit that was filed in early June this year on behalf of three families who are currently under investigation and 600 other families who are members of PFLAG, which is an advocacy group for... LGBTQ plus families. And this is having to do with earlier this year, I think in February, when our favorite attorney general, Ken Paxton, issued 
issued what I would like to bold and underline was a non-binding legal opinion where he argued that gender-affirming medical care should be considered child abuse. And he issued a legal opinion. Yes. And he is not a court. Right. It was like a memo, essentially. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And he refers to, quote, elective sex changes, which seems to be primarily talking about surgery, but then later he clarified it to include hormone therapy and other uh, other medications like puberty blockers. However... I will point out that it specifies that it does not address or apply to medically necessary procedures. And then this was followed up by Governor Greg Abbott's directive where he instructed the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services to investigate parents who might be providing gender-affirming care to their children. And that sort of leads us to this, this latest lawsuit. Now, sort of a side note to all this, and this is not my, I mean, it is my personal opinion, but this is also in in the complaint that was filed in this lawsuit that gender affirming care has been endorsed by all major medical associations as the proper treatment for gender dysphoria. And when it comes to children and teens, that care primarily focuses on social transitions, like kids dressing differently or using different pronouns or a different name according to um, who they feel that they are. And in some cases, these kids are prescribed puberty blockers. So the main argument against these investigations is that parents have every right to employ procedures that are medically necessary to treat gender dysphoria. Now, in March of this year, a federal district judge granted an injunction that blocked the state from conducting these investigations, and that was upheld by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. However, in May, the Texas Supreme Court overturned that injunction. However, I do want to point out that that was it, that was due to a procedural issue. Essentially, the state Supreme Court found that the courts could enjoin the state from conducting its investigation into the, the initial family that sued over these policies, but they did not have the power to grant a statewide injunction. So it, it comes into the where I think we've talked about the Administrative Procedures Act before, where it, it gets a lot more play than you'd think it does. And this is the, the Texas version of, of that, where the, the court basically said, hey, you didn't exactly have the power to do this. And so this latest lawsuit aims to more broadly address these investigations. They argue that the governor and the DFPS commissioner essentially circumvented the legislature when they decided to do this because the Texas legislature did consider but failed to pass legislation that would have criminalized gender affirming care. And so this lawsuit is basically saying, hey, the legislature had the chance to do this they didn't do it. So now the governor and the attorney general, any of these people, they can't say like, oh, we're just going to go ahead and and investigate this stuff anyway and and put families through stuff like this and threaten to take their children away. And like, Mm -hmm. I'm trying really hard to keep my my personal opinions under (laughs) my hat on this, but oh, it's hard. So I'm going to ask a a really tough question and and maybe you don't know the answer to this. At least it's a tough question for me. But Mm -hmm. let's say I'm a middle school teacher in Texas. And as a middle school teacher, I'm a mandatory reporter. So if if I spot abuse, then I, I have to report it. I'm legally obligated to. Right. One of my students has indicated that they are going to go through some sort of transition, whether it's surgery or hormone therapy, something like that. Do I need to be worried as a teacher? That's one of the the sort of really sticky pieces of this. And one of the things that the state Supreme Court addressed in its opinion, where they, they did note that DFPS is not actually compelled by law to follow 
the governor and the attorney general's policies. So that's one really important thing that the both the state Supreme Court and this new lawsuit are pushing back on. They're saying that this is not what the law says. And the mm-hmm. Department of Family and Protective Services is tasked with carrying out the law. But that's part of the problem is that both the agency and, yeah, I'm sure people who are in positions where they are mandatory reporters feel like they have no choice because of these other these other factors when, like, legally they don't. So, yeah, it's, it's really complicated and it puts people in a really, really hard position. And it might not be a terrible idea to contact an attorney mm-hmm. if you find yourself in that position and discuss what your legal obligations are and what you can and can't do to yeah. protect yourself and your students. Mm-hmm. And I will also just mention that it's not just the parents and children involved here um, with, with these kinds of laws. Um, so in the case of Doe v. Abbott, which is the families of the transgender children suing Governor Greg Abbott, one of the named plaintiffs is actually the clinical psychologist um, mm-hmm. named Megan Mooney. And her allegation is that, well, she's now required by state law to report her clients that receive gender-affirming mm-hmm. care. But you know, she says that if she has to comply with this governor's directive, that raises ethical concerns for her. Yeah, for the children who are dealing with this type of thing. And and I think the, the complaint actually says it really well, so I'm going to quote it, where they, they wrote, being transgender is not itself a medical condition to be cured, but... Gender dysphoria is a serious medical condition that, if left untreated, can result in debilitating anxiety, severe depression, self-harm, and suicide in some cases. And so, yeah, you're right. It puts medical professionals and mental health professionals in a very hard position as well because they have an obligation to provide care. And what are they supposed to do if providing that care is going to get um, a child's family put under investigation? Yeah. It's similar and a little different to the position of abortion providers, because in in the case of, you know, Dobbs and the doctors providing abortion, those doctors were being criminally charged uh, by the state because they were, the statues were criminalizing the providing of abortion. Here, it's more like the governor is obligating her to do some Mm -hmm. kind of reporting. Uh, if she, you know, if there's, if there's, um, she has to report to which of her clients are re- receiving gender affirming care. So it's not criminal, but it's still putting her in a compromised position. Well, and the results could be, can still be dire. I mean, this is, this is family and protective services. Someone's kids could get taken away under something like this. So it's a, it's a big deal and we'll have to see where this challenge goes. I'm guessing it's going to go at the very least to the Texas Supreme Court, if not further. Well, Texas is not the only state who has jumped into the pool about these sorts of laws. Um, Everything seems to be back in play. Obviously, I was being facetious about everything being over with because (laughs) it seems like things are just heating up again. Mm -hmm. So we talked already briefly, I I think a little bit tangentially about the quote unquote, don't say gay bill. Mm -hmm. So Florida is certainly passing laws. Texas is, uh, I believe something like 20 states have passed laws that affect LGBTQ populations in some way. So it's definitely something that's on the rise. We haven't seen a lot of federal action on it lately, but we have seen a couple of executive orders come out. So this is the Biden administration, both intentionally, I think, 
coming out with these executive orders during Pride Month as politicians are going to politician. <laughs> and um, also that I think in a response to some of these state laws. So there are actually two executive orders that I think we should call attention to. One was issued in March. And so this was an executive order and I'd, I'm not going to list the name because these are long and unwieldy <laughs> titles, but essentially it affects Title IX. It issued proposed regulations that would formalize protections for sexual orientation and gender identity under Title IX. Title IX does not officially address sexual orientation or gender identity. What it did not do, however, was talk about what for some reason has become a really hot topic. I don't I, I don't understand why this is so important to people, but it doesn't talk about athletics. Oh. There's nothing from the feds or this executive order that addresses whether trans women can compete in college sports or that sort of thing. To me, that's more of a culture war issue than a legal one. So I don't think we need to yeah. get into that. I think it's important to note that this case you talk about, Joe, applies to Title IX, whereas earlier in, in Bostock and in other cases since Bostock, Bostock ruled mm-hmm. on Title VII mm-hmm. cases. And so there has been no equivalent, there has been no Bostock version applied to Title IX cases. So I guess that's why we continue to have all these questions of can trans women participate in sports? Can um, Do we have these bathroom bills? Like, how, how does this apply to uh, sports, bathrooms, school place, uh, things like that? Mm-hmm. Because we don't have the equivalent of discrimination um, in, in schools. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for that that summary. That was great. So yeah, that's kind of what the executive order was aimed at. It's still proposed. I think it's still being commented upon. So we'll see what the final rules are. But that was that was kind of the gist of that. Of, of course, there's more to it. And Laura, you mentioned the Administrative Procedure Act, um, <laughs> yep. which is the bane of my existence <laughs> because I, I do just, not. I never, when I was in law school, I never thought I would spend so much time thinking about the administrative procedures. Oh yeah. No, it's, 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 just uh, not, it's not the sexiest law. Yeah. I would not want to sit on the DC circuit court of appeals. That is for sure. <laughs> no. um, that is their entire lives is the administrative <laughs> procedure act. But there was a second EO I wanted to call attention to, and that just recently came out. And this is, more directly about state laws. So basically, the order directs the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, to use the Education Department's authority to support LGBTQ students. And basically, it orders the Education Department to promote the adoption of policies and practices that will support the safety and well-being of LGBTQ students. So there's not a lot of detail yet. It's basically like, we're going to fund some research. We're going to look into this. We're going to see how we can help students who may be impacted by some of these new laws coming out. So it is an answer. It's I'm, I'm not sure how much effect it'll have overall, but it, it is something coming from the federal level. But that that's about it. There's there's nothing that I'm aware of. We need we need Andy for our legislative <laughs> update. So I, will, yeah. I I don't know any proposed law in the works. There might be, but nothing that's that's imminent that I'm aware of. 
Yeah, it seems to be like a general um, allocation of funds to like either support sort of like counseling services or investigation into the appropriateness of conversion mm-hmm. therapy. Just like it seems a little a little vague. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is good to bring up, though, Vedi, because it is specifically trying to help students basically not have to go through conversion therapy which, as we mentioned, is not what medical professionals recommend. They do not recommend conversion therapy for anyone. And so they, this EO would tie federal funding to conversion therapy. So if any organization wants to receive federal funds, they cannot actively support conversion therapy. We've got a little bit of time left before the Supreme Court ends its term. Do we think there's going to be any decisions coming out from the Supreme Court coming up that could impact any of these issues? Well, funny you should ask, because not that long ago, we just had a two-part series on Dobbs when that when a Dobbs draft opinion was leaked. And, and we had mentioned then, if you remember, that, you know, the Dobbs ruling directly implicates abortion rights, but the line of precedent that Dobbs was a part of is so much broader than that. And it encompasses rights from contraception to gay marriage and gay sex. And mm-hmm. so, for example, Lawrence v. Texas was a prominent win for, for gay rights in expanding, um, you know, and allowing for gay sex. Um, and that is all sort of part and parcel of that reasoning based on um, a 14th Amendment uh, due process and, uh, you know, substantive due process. Although a lot of the cases we talked about today are under equal protection as well. And so, again, Alito said in his draft um, of the opinion that he's only talking about abortion, but a lot of people will argue that the same logic that he's overruling as applied to abortion could could easily implicate all kinds of rights, including a lot of the gay civil liberties that have been won. Interestingly, though, not Bostock because of the way mm-hmm. that it was decided. When it came out, I think people were very surprised at the textualist approach. In retrospect, I would guess the justices who signed on to that opinion are probably pretty glad for that approach because by not tying it so much to these unenumerated rights, Bostock may be a little bit less in the crosshairs than some of these other cases we're talking about. Yeah, because again, Bostock is directly tied to a statute. It wasn't a constitutional decision based on either equal protection or substantive due process. So I guess, yeah, Bostock will be safe as long as Title VII is still safe. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. Everyone needs an estate plan. That's why FindLaw worked with lawyers from across the country and employed Thomson Reuters' industry-leading form automation technology to create affordable, customizable, do-it-yourself estate planning documents. Forms available include a last will and testament, healthcare directive and living will, and financial power of attorney. You can purchase a form individually, or you can bundle all three for a 10% discount. Both individual and couples packages are available. 
FindLaw's estate planning forms are backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can update your finished estate plan for free for up to a year after purchase. There is no time like the present to start estate planning and get peace of mind, especially when you can do it from the comfort of home and at a fraction of the cost of going to an attorney. To get started, head to www.findlaw.com forms.